children are dismissed. I see many of them running out the doors, so flee away, young children. Uh, turn your Bibles this morning to the book of Genesis, chapter 37. It feels so strange to not say turn to Job. <laughs> so as I'm preaching this morning, if instead of Joseph I say Job, you'll forgive me. You'll be patient with me. We wrapped up Job. Uh, we're in our Advent series, uh, looking really at Old Testament types, foreshadowings, uh, images, preludes to Christ. And they help us to understand dynamics and particulars about Christ that we really would not understand any other way. Uh, they are delightful to study and to spend time in. I, I was spending some time studying specifically for Joseph this week. I uh, was doing some reading and uh, was one of those moments where I was looking, reading through one guy's commentary document. Uh, it, was a, it was a thesis, PhD thesis he wrote on it. He took 12 weeks to preach through Joseph. I got one morning. So it felt a little unfair. There's so much packed in there. And so how do we, how do we look at Joseph in a way... Specifically, it helps point our hearts to Christ, uh, to Christmas season, to the coming Messiah. And so I thought I'd start in a little bit of a strange place with you this morning. And that's with a little bit of a Christmas movie quiz. Now, I've only got four of them, but I, I just want to ask you, and um, I even ex excerpted this from my notes that so many of you take. There's, I always print my sermon notes out on the back table. You could read them faster than I can preach them, but I took it out so you can't cheat. Um, uh, I'm not calling out anybody in particular, but I'm looking right at you, June. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I don't think she would. I don't think she would. She, she, but she would love games. So here's one. I'm going to describe a movie. You've got to figure out what it is. A lactose intolerant man murders Santa Claus and impersonates him to win back his son's love. Any clue? Well, that's, that's the Santa Claus. That's Tim Allen and the Santa Claus. You're like, well, that's not classic enough, Steve. Do you not... No, okay, okay, well, let me, let me give you another one. I'd be shocked if most, if not all of us, have seen this one. Self-absorbed child tortures people with toys instead of calling the police. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, Home Alone. Like, let's be honest, he's fun to watch. Nobody wants to raise that kid, right? Like, he's got, some people have issues. He's got full subscription going on here, right? Okay, here's one, maybe, maybe a little bit more classic for you. Following a divine intervention... A banker recognizes the unseen good that he does, and he makes a GoFundMe campaign for the loan that he needs. Yes, it's a wonderful life. Um, we had not watched this with our children. That thing's like four days long. I don't know if you knew that, but um, we had not watched that. I think last, was it last Christmas we watched it for the first time? And it's one of my son's favorite movies, Christmas movies now. And it is, it is actually, it's a lot of fun. Um, that Buffalo Gals, won't you come out tonight? It's a great scene. Anyway, okay, so. Senior citizen learns lessons from dead people, gives goose to only employee. Yeah, Christmas carol. You all immediately think of Scrooge, right? It's become synonymous with that, a Christmas carol. Now you're disappointed. You're like, that's all I got this morning, right? So, um, oh, best part of the sermon. Amen, let's go. Um, you know, I, the true Christmas story is a classic. Um, you know, it's shepherds, wise men, star in the sky, poor couple uh, making a long journey, a manger with the animals, angels singing, uh, and we look for ways to market. We market with ornaments, with plays, with songs, 
parties, nativities, books, and movies. Our, our church is decorated for Christmas. I, it, we love it as a family. This, this will offend some of you. I Sorry, not sorry. We decorate before Thanksgiving because we always go away for Thanksgiving. And we like to come back and the house have lights and it be decorated. My son and I, my oldest son and I spent four hours yesterday hanging Christmas lights at our house, um, which also involves 17 red ant bites. I thought they were dormant. They're not. Um, but we love to decorate and we love to celebrate. Uh, growing up in church, I, one of the highlights of my elementary school days was playing Joseph across Shelley as Mary, who I had a deep crush on. It was a wonderful moment. Uh, singing in choirs, I know that's shocking to some of you, um, but just celebrating the Christmas season. And I'm afraid, though, that a lot of times it's such a classic that we remember it wrongly or we remember it poorly. It gets jumbled in our minds, and so we don't really grasp what's happening in the Christmas story and in the Christmas season. And the truth is, Christmas is just the beginning of the grandest story that God would ever tell. And so the question was, how can we understand it better? How can we find ourselves even in the Christmas story? Should we? Where are we? Most importantly, how do we understand Christ in a deeper way? And so this is where our Advent series takes us this morning. The Christmas is only the start of a glorious story that ultimately rescues our story. And so we're going to look at Joseph this morning, and, and admittedly, this is not a 12, 11 or 12 sermon series in Joseph. I got one morning. And so it will be a, a Boeing 737 flyover of Joseph's life, but it will help us to understand Christ in a deeper way. Joseph is one of the most extensive types of Christ in all the Bible. When we say type, let me just be very clear what I mean. We mean an, an image. We mean uh, because it happens before Christ, he was pointing to Christ. There are aspects of his story that help you to understand the Messiah that was going to come. And Joseph is one of the most extensive. You might think of David as a type of Christ because he's King David. You might think of Abel even as a type of Christ because he worships God rightly and he suffers and dies for it. There's lots of types. Um, Boaz, as, as the kinsman redeemer of Ruth, is a type of Christ. Joseph, though, is the most extensive type of Christ in all of the Old Testament, I would argue. That's my opinion, but I would argue it and, and I think could make a fair argument for it. But ultimately, Joseph will show us Christ's story can be our story, and we can find ourselves in the Christmas story in a way that helps us. And so, like all good stories, we're going to start right in the beginning. God begins his greatest story in the beginning, Genesis 1-1-1. So I think it's important for us to start in the beginning of Joseph's story. And so first of all, I would just point you to the reality that Joseph and Jesus are both loved and hated. And if you're in Genesis 37, we'll, we'll be flipping through a lot of texts of scripture this morning, back and forth from New Testament to Old Testament. It's not a traditional, as I would normally preach, just one passage all the way through. But in Genesis 37, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. I'm going to read down through verse 4. If you have your Bibles, please follow along with me as I read. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. 
because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Joseph, most loved son of his father, causes incredible tension in the home, becomes a springboard for all the events that are going to happen in Joseph's life. Now, some preachers and some commentators even are very uncomfortable with a significant truth about Joseph that we'll talk about more later in the sermon, and that is this. Nowhere is sin assigned to Joseph in his story. And so lots of times, uh, it's not unusual, I, I should put it that way, for preachers or commentators to come to this first point and try to cast Joseph as this self-absorbed, arrogant young man who is a rat on his brother's. And the reality is when you look at Joseph's story from 17 on, what you see is a man of integrity. You see a man who is honest. You see a man who walks righteously and with God. And so the inclusion here at the beginning that Joseph would be with the older brothers and his older brothers are doing wrong. He has the courage and the integrity to deal with it. That's what the Bible's setting the stage here for. That who we find Joseph to be years later at 30 when he takes over from Pharaoh leading Egypt and preparing for the famine is the same man he was at 17. This has always been the constancy of Joseph. And because of two factors, his integrity and his father's affections, his brothers hate him. They hate him to the core. Uh, Joseph's older brothers, while these are the patriarchs, these, these become, along with Joseph's two sons, the 12 tribes. This is like a rogues gallery. They deceive people. They kill people. They wipe out entire cities. They lie. They cheat. They steal. It's actually a reminder that God loves to use people just like you and me. He's not looking for perfect people to make them prettier. He's not doing cosmetic surgery on, on models to, to make them more attractive. He's taking dead people and making them live. And so the patriarchs, the 12 tribes, come from these brothers and Joseph's two sons later. And they are this rogues gallery. They are people that you and I would never want to do business with. And Joseph is born into this family. And he's loved by his father, but hated by all of his brothers. And so while Joseph, being the most loved by Jacob, can even be a problem for us. I mean, after all, Jacob had 12 sons. And so how is it that even with his 12 sons, he chooses one that he loves the most? It may be even that you're here this morning and you've experienced that in your home. A brother or sister is the favored one. And it's made obvious who the favorite one is. It's not just your guesswork, it's reality. And there's a pain in that. And so we understand even in that, while not excusing Joseph's brother's hatred, we understand it. But with Jesus, it's different. He is the most loved by the Father. He's the only begotten Son. At his baptism, God the Father speaks from the heavens and says, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The problem, though, with Christ is he is then hated by all of his own brothers. Ultimately, he's hated by the nation of Israel, by his genetic, his cultural brothers. And so both Joseph and Jesus are both loved by their fathers and hated by their brothers. But they're also both on mission. 
all the time we get from Joseph and Jesus mission. Uh, Genesis 37, if you're still there, if you go down to verses 10 onward, you'll begin to see this happen in Joseph's life. Actually, I'm going to begin back in verse 5 because there's two sets of dreams. Genesis 37, verse 5. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his fathers and said, told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Again, there are some who come to this moment and they think Joseph is this naive, he has low emotional intelligence and awareness. That already his brothers don't like him and he tells this dream where they're bowing down to him. What's his alternative? Well, it's pretty simple. Keep silent about what God has said and what God is teaching him or speak it and be hated even more. What's our option? Be silent about those things that God says so that we can have some misguided hope to be accepted. Joseph is simply doing the only thing he really can do. He is expressing what God is showing him, what God is telling him. And his brothers, though, are fixated on power. His brothers are fixated on who is going to be in control and who will rule. Joseph, God is telling him at 17 years of age, I have a mission for you. He's dreaming these dreams, and we all would dream dreams, but Joseph recognizes these are unique. There's something different about these. Joseph is aware these dreams don't come from his own imaginations, from his own subconscious desire. These dreams come from God himself, and Joseph sees that, and he understands that, and he wants to tell his brothers, his family about it. Help me understand, what is God calling me to do? What is God going to do? But he's in a home that has no interest in hearing the authoritative word of God. He's been given this coat of many colors. Uh, we, we have it pictured in so many ways. It, it feels like every, every time I ever saw a children's play, they got some ugly bathrobe from Goodwill, right? And that was the coat of many colors. Um, my father-in-law loves robes, and he had a robe for a number of years. This thing had to be circa 1983. So it was great fashion in 1983, not so much in 2020, right? And it had all these patches of different colors, and we would call it Joseph's Coat of Many Colors. We finally found a way to expedite this out of the home and get him a new robe that he delights in and he loves. But when we think of Joseph's Coat of Many Colors, it's not uncommon for us to think of a bathrobe. But these robes were intended to communicate authority and royalty. It was a visible declaration that I'm in charge. Jacob gave it to him. Joseph didn't seize this. It would have been an indication that he would have been the primary one inheriting everything from his father. He, he was being treated like the firstborn, even though he's the 11th born of 12 sons. But he's the firstborn of Jacob's most loved and favorite wife, Rachel. And so he's given this mission 
from his father. You're going to be in charge, this coat of many colors. He's given this mission from God that you are going to exert some kind of rule. With Jesus, you might remember the one story from his youth that also deals with what his real mission and purpose would be. In Luke 2, it's recorded for us. And when his parents saw him, this is after they had been to Jerusalem, they had been there at a celebration of festival, they had started traveling away, and then they couldn't find 12-year-old Jesus. And you might be wondering, how could that happen? Well, the, the crowds that would swell Jerusalem at this time were unbelievable. Think, think of almost like New York City on New Year's Eve, if you've ever watched uh, the Dick Clark special, whatever, with the apple falling, and I think Ryan Seacrest does it now, um, but just mobs of people, and you would expect this 12-year-old to stay where he needed to be, and maybe he's with extended family, maybe he's with friends, maybe he's even watching over some of his younger brothers and sisters. Jesus physically had younger brothers and sisters. And so when they realize he's gone, they go trying to find him, and they find him at the temple. And that's what happens in Luke 2. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. Why? Because he was sitting there, and he was interacting with the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. He was interacting and asking questions and answering questions. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? What was Jacob's response to Joseph's dreams? He made it about him. Mary in this moment, and, and we want to be kind to Mary, right? Um, my brother and I, one time we were at Hoshul Cohn. It was an old department store, at least up north. And my mom was shopping and my brother and I were playing hide and seek in the store. And we found the ladies' fur coats. And we hid in the rack of fur coats for a long time. And eventually we heard our mother looking for us along with several store employees. And we made the very wise decision that children, that my children make at that moment, that what would be best is for us to stay silent. As they scrambled and sought for us, and I will never forget the look of terror on the faces when we finally emerged. And it was a lot of terror and anger and what has happened to you. It was at the height of the child abduction fear in the early to mid-80s. This moment for Mary, we, we want to be kind to her. She's looking for her son. She and Joseph are desperate. They've had to travel back all the way to Jerusalem to try to find him. But in this moment, make no mistake, she makes it about her. Jesus is on mission, but she's going to make it about her. Joseph is on mission. Jacob is going to make it about him. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he said to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. If we had time, if we had 12 sermons to preach through Joseph, one of the things that I would do in one of those sermons was, would be simply to walk you through all the language links between Joseph and Jesus. There's a shocking amount of them. You don't have to know Greek or Hebrew, though, at all to understand what is happening here. And the phrasing that Jacob treasured this or held this in his heart is the same phrasing the Septuagint, it's a Greek translation of the Old Testament, would use. And it's the same phrasing that Luke here, here uses. This is actually the second time that Mary treasures all these things in her heart. You might remember that Mary is processing what has happened. It showed up once before. It's when she was visited with the shepherds. She's just given birth in the manger. 
which was most likely, contrary to even what our nativity scenes show, um, not this outbuilding, but almost the forefront of a single-story structure. We've done enough, there's been enough, we've done enough archaeology. There's been enough archaeological digs to demonstrate that lots of first century homes in Palestine were built this way. Think of it as a very large room where they would subdivide for kind of bedroom sleeping quarters where they would cook in the corner. Um, they would meet, gather in the middle. And then there would almost be a four room uh, separated by a small brick wall uh, made of clay bricks. And that is where the animals would be kept in the, kind of that four area of the house, usually sunken down a little bit low so that animal uh, refuse and excrement would not drift up into the house. Um, they would lay straw there and they would call that the manger. So it's most likely not that she's off in some completely outbuilding. There are, there are caves here, but they're not extensive where Christ was born. So it's more like the forefront of this house. Here is Mary, um, but they're sleeping where the animals are. There's no way around that. Um, I, I don't care where you go. That, that never smells nice. That's no place to give birth to a baby. And then out of nowhere, these shepherds show up. Shepherds who have left their flocks, which is the, everything for them. Who have come into town. Shepherds who are some of the lowest thought of people in their culture. There were a couple of groups of people that could not give testimony in courts of law. Women, because they were looked down upon so much. And shepherds, because they're, they traveled and could you really trust them? They're not going to stick around. How do you know their integrity? And so here we have shepherds who, by the way, the shepherds outside of Bethlehem raised the lambs that would be used for slaughter at Passover. The imagery here is just profound. These are the ones who come and celebrate the birth of Christ. So here Mary has had this report. She's, the angel's spoken to her, obviously. She's been with her cousin Elizabeth, um, John the Baptist sleeping in the womb. But, but I think Mary's actually a lot like you and I, where we believe truth, but our heart just wants more. It's, it's kind of like that father with Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. And so for these shepherds to show up and start worshiping because they recognize this is the Messiah, Mary is processing this and she says she treasures this. She holds this in her heart. And this is the other time she does this. She holds this in her heart. And Jacob does this with Joseph. It always matches this. When the mission is revealed, the parent is astonished. Shocked that this is what God is doing. When Luke uses this language, and like I said, we could preach a whole sermon just on the linguistic connections, he is telling us to filter Jesus' story through Joseph's story. You want to understand Jesus, he's given you a pattern in Joseph. And so we look at it with new lenses. Jesus is destined to be their savior. Luke using this is telling us, then consider what happens in Joseph's life and you'll understand a little bit better what happens in Jesus' life. It's like looking at a photo, but then looking at the negative, and you see certain details that you might otherwise miss. And so let's press forward in the story. And another common phrase that God uses in the Bible when he wants to move a story along is, and it came to pass. God consistently uses that to move stories forward, but one of my favorites is in Lamentations 3.37. Who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it. 
coming to pass is translated over 50 times in the King James Version, at least. And it's a way of understanding that God's timing is perfect. And what happens next is of critical importance. And so how do we understand it from Joseph and Jesus? Well, from Joseph's life, we can see the rejection and suffering. And this is where we have to fly over. And I know maybe not all of us are as familiar with the story of Joseph, and while others maybe are very familiar with it, having been raised in church. And so I want to give you a flyover, maybe highlight reel of what takes place in Joseph's life. His brothers become so angry with him, 10 of them, because there's one brother younger than Joseph, that's Benjamin. And so uh, the older 10 brothers become so enraged with Joseph that they decide we're going to kill him. And there really is an attempted murder here, and they beat him, and then there's a conversation. They decide, you know, well, let's, let's throw him in a pit. One brother comes up with that plan so that his secret plan is to rescue him because he doesn't have the courage of Joseph who would be willing to speak the truth. He's got to do it secretly. Well, one of the other brothers decides, you know what? No, let's make some money off of him. So they go from attempted murder to selling him into slavery. There's a traveling caravan coming down through Canaan, and they sell Joseph to them. Can you imagine being 17 years of old, stripped of your robes, beaten to a bloody pulp by your older brothers that you should be able to trust, and then sold into slavery and shackled together? He's taken down to Egypt and he finally begins to work in a man named Potiphar's house. His integrity, his work ethic, his righteousness uh, are of such a nature that Joseph quickly rises through the ranks. In other words, who Joseph was in Egypt is who Joseph was in Canaan. Who Joseph was when everything was good is who Joseph was when everything was bad. That's how our character is revealed, isn't it? And so Joseph rises through the ranks and Potiphar's wife takes a liking to him and attempts to sexually assault him. Joseph, as a young man, runs away. His running away then is turned into an accusation against him. He's thrown into prison in an unjust imprisonment and in a broken justice system. He spends time there with criminals, no one but criminals. He ends up there where two criminals, one a baker and the other one a cupbearer for the Pharaoh. He interprets dreams for them. And yet they forget about him. One is killed for his crimes. The other one is restored to his position. And yet they forget about Joseph and he is left and he is essentially abandoned. And then even after all of that, Pharaoh ultimately will have his own dreams, call Joseph he will, Joseph will interpret the dreams for Pharaoh. They will realize there's a famine coming on the land. And so they will put Joseph in a position of power and authority. He has as much power and authority logistically as Pharaoh does. And Joseph is the one who begins to structure how the land works and begins to structure how they are safeguarding their food so that because of Joseph's actions, Egypt will become the world's superpower of their day. And yet... He does not have his family. He's in a foreign land, unable to return home, because in many ways, his mission has just started. Joseph lives a life of suffering, and we can tie it directly to Christ. There are so many parallels from Joseph to Jesus' life as to be almost overwhelming. Both are sent to Jesus, Egypt. Jesus 
At a very young age, after the slaughter of the innocents, when Herod wants to kill all the babies, Jesus, his parents, they flee and they run away to Egypt with him to be safe. Jesus is rejected by his brothers. Now, all the nation of Israel will reject Jesus. They will kill him, even as it is our sin with them that kills him. But Jesus' own physical brothers turn against him. He had several younger brothers and younger sisters. And there came a moment in Jesus's ministry when he was preaching and his brothers were embarrassed of him. And his own brothers, knowing that they wanted to kill Jesus in Jerusalem, and this is mind boggling to me, but his own brothers looked at him and said, you should go down to Jerusalem. How much hatred do you have to have for your brother that you'd want to send him into the very hands of the ones who want to murder him? Like I got three brothers um, we have had our fights and, and there's massive age gaps. My older brother's two, two years, six months and 24 days older than me. I don't keep count. Um, and then my next younger brother is about eight years younger than me. And the next one is 18 years younger than I am. My older brother and I, we had some fights. Um, my first, my first bloody lip was from my older brother. Um, we had wrestling matches, but I'll tell you this, when, by the t- as we grew up, uh, we were one of those families, I could fight with them, but you better not touch my brother. My first fight in school was as a kindergartner, shoving a kid down the steps for picking on my older brother. It's like, you don't touch my brother. I would do anything for them. I cannot fathom the level of hatred that Jesus' own brothers had for him. And yet we know Jesus was sinless. So we know their hatred for Jesus has nothing to do with anything Jesus has done. has everything to do with their own carnal hearts. Joseph is a wonderful picture to us of the hatred that existed for Jesus. He's sold for the slave price of silver. Joseph is sold for 20 pieces of silver. Jesus for 30. Both of them were the going slave rate of their day. Both have robes that indicate royalty. Joseph is coat of many colors. Jesus is robed in a robe of purple that is thrown across his back, that has been flayed open. He's been whipped and beaten, and they throw this royal robe on him, only to rip it away from him later. They're both 30 at the start of their ministry. The Bible, specifically in Genesis, tells us in Joseph was 30 when he rises into Pharaoh's household. Jesus is 30 when he officially begins his ministry. Both are righteous in resisting temptation. Potiphar's wife tries to assault Joseph and he runs away from it and he resists the temptation. Jesus, at the start of his ministry, he spends 40 days, 40 nights being tempted by Satan and it it comes to this ultimate culmination in this eclipsing moment. Both of them are surrounded by two criminals, one that is vindicated and one that is not. And both have persecutors later who try to convince others of their death. When Joseph's brothers sold him to the slave traders. They took this coat of many colors. They smeared blood on it. They went back to their father, Jacob, and they said, he's dead. They wanted him to move on. After Jesus's death and resurrection, the Jewish leaders were terrified that others would believe that he had raised from the dead. And so the persecutors try to convince others that he is dead. There's a theme that has developed here with Joseph and Jesus. And for the first time, I want to invite you in your story into their story. 
And Jesus actually describes for us what it is like to walk righteously and how people will treat you. In John chapter 15, he does it. And so turn there quickly because I want you to understand that what happens with Joseph, while it is unusual, and it points to Jesus, and what happens with Jesus seems so unusual to us, they both are actually normal for people who follow Christ. John 15, verses 18 through 19. Jesus said this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. I think in America today, it's easy for Christians um, to be a little too sensitive. And what I mean by that is things that we call persecution, I, I honestly, I don't think of them as persecution. If we were to lose our tax-exempt status as a church, would that impact us financially? Absolutely. Would that be hard? Absolutely. Do I think that's persecution? No. I don't. I think we live in a planet where there are people that are hiding and are having to be careful because if they say that they follow Christ openly they will be beaten and killed for it. I think that's persecution. I think the closest we come frequently are these kinds of verses. We follow Christ and people of this world hate us. And I'm actually concerned that in American Christianity, far too often we're afraid to own Christ in a way that actually the world will hate us. I think it's easy to hide the genuineness of our faith. Jesus, if, you, if you're in that same text, if you just go down to verse 24, he tells you what it is that really spurs this on. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they've seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Do you know what will really make people in the world hate you and I? Doing what Christ has called us to do. Being on mission. Not on mission to have more things here. Not on mission to have more stuff. Not on mission to be liked and to be loved. But on mission to tell lost people they need Christ. On mission to love people as Christ has loved us. On mission to do the works of God himself. To walk in the feet of Christ and to speak truth when it needs to be spoken. That is what will make people hate us. I think far too often in American Christianity, we're not willing to do that. Joseph seems so unusual how hated he is. Joseph is hated because he's doing what God has called him to do. Because he has integrity and righteousness. Jesus is hated because of his integrity and righteousness. And if you and I will walk in the footsteps of Jesus, we will be hated. Do not be shocked when the world hates you for doing what is right. Understanding the life of Joseph gives a framework for understanding the life of Christ and its cycles of rejection and suffering. And Jesus, though, ends and and he basically says in that moment, but they hated me for the right things that I did. And so Joseph and Jesus point us ultimately to righteousness. Jesus is the ultimate only sinless one. But for 13 chapters, you get the story of Joseph in Genesis. And not one time, 
Not one time is he ever listed as having sinned. Now, we know that Joseph sinned. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the Bible does not shy away, lest you think, well, the Bible just didn't want to throw mud on uh, a hero's name. Growing up as a kid, uh, you might remember, maybe, maybe at my home even, um, there was a, there's a pattern, right? Like mom and dad, or dad specifically is the hero. And as you grow up, it was like, man, my dad can do no wrong. Kids on a playground, if you're really at the, at the brink of a fight, you'll even say, my dad could beat up your dad, right? And, and then as you get older, you realize dad's not always right. And, and maybe the, there's a little bit of the death of the hero complex. And so if your kids are young, enjoy the hero moments. Because the day will come when they'll realize you don't have it all together. But that's okay too, because that's part of training them to be men and women. To recognize it's not about having it all together here, but trusting in Christ and following him. And it's okay because you can be faithful even when you make mistakes and you sin. But there's this moment, there's this season and so maybe you would think, well, the Bible's hiding from us Joseph's wrongs because the Bible doesn't want to portray people accurately for who they really are. But that's simply not true. Abraham, we are told, is a liar and an adulterer. Noah, Noah is a drunk. First thing he does when everybody's died and they get the ark settles on dry ground, plant some grapes, make some wine, and drink until he's drunk. The Bible doesn't hide these truths. Sarah fails in her faith and she tells Abraham to essentially take her handmaiden. And I don't know about you, but if I just ask the question this way, what would we call it if a slave is made to sleep with a slave owner? We have words for that. It's called rape. That was Sarah's idea. And then when she has her own baby... She treats this slave girl mercilessly to the point of driving her away. What about David, an adulterer and a murderer? Solomon, who has more wives than you can count, turns his own heart to idolatry and leads the nation of Israel into idolatry. Gideon, the coward. Samson, the womanizer and the partier. Every one of those I've just listed are listed in Hebrews 11 in what we call the hall of faith. The Bible does not shy away from being honest about the kind of people God uses. Have you ever felt too ashamed to be in church? Then I would say to you this way, hopefully graciously, and I want my words to fall tenderly, then you've been thinking like the world, not like God. Because God loves to call and use broken people like me and like you. And so when the Bible doesn't tell us of Joseph's sin, it's not saying that he's sinless. It's not afraid to deal honestly with what people are like. But instead, he's telling us of a unique righteousness in Joseph's story because he's pointing us to Christ. We would read Joseph's story then, examining 13 chapters, looking for sin and not finding it ever displayed in front of us. And so we would ask, why? Can it ever be possible that someone would actually live sinlessly? Yes, because it was pointing forward to Jesus. Hebrews 7, 26, for it was indeed fitting, speaking of Christ, that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. At no point does the Bible ever say Joseph is sinless. Simply doesn't tell us of his sin. But with Jesus, he is sinless. 
And we are told repeatedly that he is sinless. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he knew no sin. What if Joseph would have given in to Potiphar's wife? What if Joseph would have given in to anger and bitterness? What if Joseph would have given in to revenge? Well, then the image and the type would have been broken, but God was superintending Joseph's stories. I hope that you understand that God is so sovereign that he can actively work through our sin failures still to get his glory. That's not excusing our sin. But he is also at work in us to drive us toward righteousness. Because while Joseph pointed forward to Jesus, we look back toward Christ. And so this story begins to unfold. And, and so while at Christmas we celebrate the arrival of Jesus, we needed the life and the righteousness of Jesus also. Because we are sinners. Well, how does God finish the stories? Well, frequently he loves to use the phrase, finally. Shows up lots in the Bible when he's concluding a story. It's always the last part of the story. We always want a story to end. Finally, be strong in the Lord. Finally, rejoice in the Lord. Finally, have unity. Finally, pray for us. Finally, he sent his son. Finally, always comes to the end. Have you ever read a really good story and you're, you want the end, but you're also a little sad that the end is coming? You get to the end of it and you almost want to read it all over again. But then you read it with new eyes because you know all that's going to unfold. It gives you deeper insight as you recognize what is coming and all the little hints and points along the way. And so when he comes to the story of Jesus, I, I think it's important to understand God wanted us to be on the lookout from the story of Jesus for things that were going to happen. He, he, he wrote uh, so much for us before Christ ever arrived on the planet. At the death of Jesus and after his resurrection, you, some of you, you may remember the story where Jesus is walking with two servants, two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and the Bible says he began to unfold for them everything that had been written about him. He wants and expects us to look at his life through lenses of types from the Old Testament and specifically for us this morning from Joseph. And so when we read and we know the and understand the story of Joseph, we begin to read and understand and know the story of Christ. What is the finally part? With Jesus, we know where it's going to end because we know where it ends with Joseph. Joseph rises through the ranks in Pharaoh's house, and now he's second in command over all of Egypt, equal in authority only to Pharaoh himself. There's going to be famine in the land that's coming, and so for seven years, Joseph sets aside uh, stockpiling food resources, waiting for the seven years of famine that were going to come, and he is a good steward in all of his upbringing in his father's house of integrity and righteousness, understanding flocks and provisions and harvest time all starts coming back. God had been preparing Joseph all along the way. How to deal with people that you cannot trust had been training for Joseph. How to run a household in Potiphar's house. How to work with criminals and people that are doing a job that no one wants to do and running a prison. All of this had been preparing Joseph. And, and so while the preparation was for the ultimate mission, the preparation itself was mission. And so now he rules the land and he is in charge and everyone knows he's the guy with the authority. 
It's so much so that as Joseph sits almost on a throne, other nations are coming and are buying grain and resources and are having to give extraordinary prices. And we can understand it's like inflation. And they're paying far more than they ever would because of Joseph's integrity and Joseph's righteousness and Joseph's planning. But Joseph is still alone. And then suddenly one day his brothers show up. And there sits Joseph. Ultimately, Joseph is going to feed and clothe and care for his brothers. But there's a whole series of events there that are amazing where he is testing his brothers. He tells them to go back and get his youngest brother because Joseph is afraid maybe they've killed Benjamin, the younger brother. Joseph's afraid of how they've treated Benjamin. Maybe they've sold him into slavery. And so if they can't bring him back, they can't be trusted. Because hear me right, Joseph wasn't bitter, but he was testing for repentance. Do they really obey? Ultimately, there's this glorious moment when finally all is revealed. His brothers really have been broken over the sin that they have done. And Joseph forgives his repentant, confessing brothers. And he is finally restored to his father, falling on the neck of his father and his brothers and weeping at restoration. And so when we see the life of Jesus, we should come expected, expecting for the ruling, reigning king to want to be restored to people. And so in Hebrews, we're told we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What is Jesus doing there? He's making intercession for his children. He's preparing our future home. He, he tells us, he told his disciples and they were sad about him leaving. He said, but why am I leaving? I'm going to prepare a place for you. He denies the accusations of Satan, who would be the accuser of the brethren. Jesus defends us. And so he's praying for us to the Father. He's defending us to the Father. He's preparing a place for us. And one day he will judge us, rewarding his children, saying, enter and well done, thou good and faithful servant, while punishing others. He sits on his throne and the question we have to ask though again when we find and begin to look for ourselves in the story is who are the people that Jesus welcomes in? Is it everybody? Is it anybody? You see at Christmas even people who don't believe are fine with lights and songs and celebrations many are fine particularly in american culture with manger scenes and nativities and christmas plays and christmas songs times have changed so much but it was in my public school that we sang whole christmas programs and i think there was like one secular song we sang now this is going back 30 years or more But lots of my friends and their families, they didn't believe, but they were okay with it because Christmas is about a baby. I can't even be mad about that. See, everybody's fine with a Jesus who comes as a baby, with a Jesus who welcomes everyone, with a Jesus who's just fine. But Joseph prepared us for this. There is an unwillingness, listen now, an unwillingness to make unrepentant people comfortable. 
Joseph was not willing, even though he was not bitter, he was not vengeful, he was not on mission to exact a price from people. He was unwilling to pretend like everything was okay if there hadn't been repentance. And Jesus is the same way. When Jesus came on mission, one of the first sermons he ever preached, he says, repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark 1.15. Repent and believe. And so we come then finally to the end of the story. John, when he writes his gospel, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call them synoptic gospels. That means they contain lots of the same information. It's something like 80% of the information in Matthew, Mark, and Luke matches. And then John comes along and John's like, y'all left a lot out. And so I'm going to write another gospel. And very, very little of John is repeated in the other gospel accounts because John's batting cleanup. John's like, I'm the last guy writing. Let me fill in some stories that nobody else has heard. And John writes a lengthy gospel, but then John gets all the way to the end of his gospel. And he said this, there's so much more that could be written and the world could not contain the books that would hold them. It's like John gets to the end of his gospel and realizes there's so much about Jesus. There's so much about the story that there's just not even time to tell. So many little conversations, so many miracles that Jesus had done, so many sermons, so many moments that would be treasured. And so what's left for us? Such a brief overview of Joseph and Jesus. Well, what's left for us is to find ourselves in the story. Where are you and I in the story of Joseph and Jesus? And I would say this, first of all, we are obviously the brothers. Without question, we are the brothers. Now that's a tough pill to swallow. But we are the people that want to rule our own lives, that want to rule our own destiny. When Joseph told the story of his dream, that's when his brothers wanted to kill him. When Jesus exposed his power and his authority, that's when the Jewish leaders want to kill him. Stephen, in the book of Acts, preaches a sermon that details the whole story of Israel. And he gets this moment and he says, and the patriarchs killed Joseph. He ties that in, he gets all the way to the end of his sermon, he goes, and you, like the patriarchs, have killed Jesus. Then they say, we're going to kill him. The revelation of who you and I really are is what offends the sinner. No one got angrier at Jesus than the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, because he called them out for who they were. He exposed them. He said, we can all dress up and look nice on the outside, but to have our hearts exposed for who we really are? This is why it's so dangerous when some commentators and some preachers even want to cast Joseph as being this arrogant young person because what you miss is what really makes sinners mad. And it's having the light of the word or the mirror of the word held up to them. What makes your heart and my heart mad? Have you ever been confronted by a friend or family member, a spouse or a neighbor, a parent, a child? And your immediate thoughts were all the things that they did wrong? I do. It's my self-defense mechanism. How dare you confront me? Look at who you are. We are the brothers in the story. We are the ones who hate having our sin exposed. Joseph's righteousness exposed his brother's selfishness. Jesus' righteousness exposes our sinfulness. 
Jesus tells the parable in the middle of his ministry of a tenant farmer. And it shows up in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the story simply goes like this. There's a tenant farmer. He owns land, uh, owns a lot of land. And so he loans it out, rents out the property to some other farmers in the area. And so the fact that he's renting it, just so we understand this from Jesus's culture, means that they had little or no money. And so he's letting them rent the land and, and use the land. And he goes away and he takes his family. He's got a son. He takes his family, he goes away to a distant land and harvest time comes. And so he sends one of his servants back to go get some of the fruit of the harvest. And that's the way Jesus tells the story. It's some of the fruit. In other words, he's letting these farmers use the land and he wants them to take the maximum, the price that they're having to pay. The rental agreement is send me some of the fruit. Just some of it. These farmers, though, are selfish, and how dare you? With all the gifts that you've given to us, with all the things you've enabled us to do, provision for our family, we don't want to give you any of it. Not even a little of it. We don't want to give you any of it. You see, they could have given some of it and hidden the rest of the harvest and said it's been a bad year. They don't want to give one thing back. So they beat up the servant and send him back. The landowner can't believe it. Who knows why they beat up the servant? Maybe the servant was, was poorly handling the situation. Maybe he was overbearing. And so he sends another servant. They beat that guy up. And one of the synoptic gospels, it says some they beat, some they stoned, some they killed. And so this landowner is at the end of it. And what else do I do with these people? And so he says, I know what I'll do. I'll send my own beloved son to them. Surely they would never hurt him. And so he sends his son, and when his son arrives, the, the farmers actually think this, well, now's our chance. Because we can kill the son, and the inheritance becomes ours. They take all the grace of the owner, the willingness to keep sending servants that they beat and they stone, and the presumption is this, he's a coward, and, and he's weak, and, and he, he will not do what he needs to do, and he won't punish us, and so they kill the son. And Jesus tells that story, and every time he tells it to the religious leaders, they get irate. Because they know, and the Bible tells us, they know that he's talking about them. You know, at the end of the day, our sin killed Christ. Your sin. My sin. If you were the only person that had ever sinned, he would have died for yours. He would have sacrificed for you. And in that moment, we are exposed. We are the brothers. What will you do with being a sinner who killed Christ? There's no glorious last chapter of Joseph's life without restoration. Could it be that this Christmas season, that God intends your story to enter into a new season, into a season of repentance and belief? Could it be that this morning you have never turned from your sin, you have never put your faith in Christ and followed him, because that's what really offends, submitting to what Jesus has for me. Then I would call you to be just like the brothers at the end of the story, who repent and are restored. We don't just have to be the brothers, we can be Joseph. Now, we're never going to rule Egypt, we're never going to sit next to Pharaoh, You're, we're not handing out coats of many colors this morning. But there are two last truths from Joseph for us this Christmas. And maybe at this Christmas you need to be reminded 
that if you stop in the middle of the story, you never get to the end. You ever been like that? You ever been watching a movie and it's so sad, you're like, okay, I can't keep watching this. What if you stopped It's a Wonderful Life when George Bailey jumps off the bridge? What if you stop with Joseph sent to prison? What if you stop with Joseph beaten and in a slave pit? What if you stop with Joseph sitting in prison with two criminals? I don't know where your story is this morning, but you may find yourself right in the middle of it. You may find yourself discouraged. What if you read even towards the end of the story and Joseph's brothers show up, but they don't bring Benjamin back in. At one point he tells them to go get him and they leave and they say, we're not going back there. They take the food and they just stay gone. I want to encourage you that Joseph tells us go all the way to the end of the story. And it's pointing us to go to the end of the story of Christ. Christmas is just the beginning. Don't stop reading. Don't stop walking. Don't stop being faithful. But press on to the end. Christmas is only the start. Secondarily, I want to encourage you to see life under God's control. Famously, Joseph sees God in it all. In Genesis 50, 20, he looks at his brothers and he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. We just finished a long series in Job. We, our hearts should be ready to echo that theological truth. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. This is so hard to say because our lives can be filled with people who want to hurt us, who want to do us damage who are actively enemies of God and enemies of us. And so it's profound that Joseph could look at his brothers and say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Like the death of Christ by our sin, we would mean it for evil, but God means it for our good. We celebrate the birth of a baby at Christmas, but it is frankly ironic to me that we celebrate the birth of the one we would kill. But yet, how else could we have forgiveness of sin? To put a very sharp point on it, Joseph names two sons that he has in Egypt, Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh is named that because the name means God has made me forget my disaster and trouble in my father's house. Joseph was able to live in the middle of his story by trusting God instead of being ruled by his past, that he had experienced. I want to call you, no matter what your past has been, to live in the present grace of Christ and to walk in that. I want to call you to live in the reality of your identity in Jesus, no matter the sins you have done or that have been done against you. Joseph walks by faith Trusting. And I just want you to know, faith and trust are not feelings. They're not. I don't feel very faithful. Oh, come all you who are unfaithful. I don't feel very strong. I don't feel like I have it together. Me either. And so all he does is call me to do the next right thing. And so do not be ruled by your past. The second son, though, Joseph, names him Ephraim. And it says this, this is the meaning, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. (laughs) What ways have you seen God, even this week, show you his grace and strength and provision? What strength for the journey has he given you? 
What breath in the lungs has he given you? What kind reminders that he is on mission for you and that he loves you? Joseph was able to live trustingly by seeing God's gifts in the face of sorrow. Christmas is a time of beginning. A new baby is born in a manger. It unfolds with a star and with shepherds. A manger, so much wonder and awe. Read it, know it, know the Christmas story, celebrate the Christmas story, live in the Christmas story. But I want to call you to look to the last chapter. For the unveiling of a king that will be so bright as to even make the holidays look like a pale display. Christmas is only the start of a glorious story that rescues our story. We don't get Joseph weeping on his father's neck and his brothers forgiving them without first having Joseph bloody and bruised in a slave pit. We don't get Jesus resurrected without the cross, and we don't get to the cross without Christmas. And so praise be to God for the Christmas story that could become our story.